0: Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation.
1: Welcome to a very special episode of Bioethics in the Margins. We're joined today by the hosts of the other bioethics podcast, Bioethics for the People. Great to see you guys.
2: Great to see you too. Glad to be special. Well, thanks for having us, Bioethics in the Margins. We are Bioethics for the People. Uh, we are a podcast that is trying to get out bioethics for people who don't study bioethics. So accessible, entertaining, hopefully, short episodes uh, that are digestible and that Tyler's grandmother really enjoys. She I- loves
3: our episodes.
2: <laughs> I'm Devin Stahl. I'm assistant professor of bioethics and religion at Baylor University.
3: And I'm Tyler Gibb. I'm an associate professor of medical ethics, humanities, and law at Western Michigan University School of Medicine.
2: All right. So today in our very special joint episode, we created a top 10 list, which I'll say doesn't necessarily go in order, but for dramatic effect will be very ordered and uh, will be a countdown for these are issues that I think we all agreed are important bioethics issues, but not necessarily the most covered bioethics issues, which I think is something we have in common, right? We're trying to get out issues in bioethics that aren't always talked about, that aren't hot topics in the media necessarily, but are important and that people should be thinking about.
4: Tyler, tell us, tell us about the number 10 most neglected topic in bioethics, and why do you think it's overlooked by mainstream bioethics?
0: Number 10.
3: All right. So number 10 is bioenhancement. So I think bioenhancement is an interesting topic that doesn't get maybe enough interest from people who don't study this area um, professionally. Um, So there are two types of enhancement that we often talk about, moral enhancement or moral bioenhancement and biological enhancement. biological enhancement is something that's been around for a long time, and people are pretty familiar with it, even if they use different words to describe it. So the idea of a a vaccination, for example, is a biological bioenhancement, where we're taking something and introducing it into the body, and it's going to make the body bigger or better or stronger in some way. A different kind of flavor of this same bioenhancement topic is about moral enhancement, So this idea that some time in the future, some medication or device is going to be developed and it will make people more ethical, more moral, um, have uh, more affinity towards each other and be able to engage in more cooperative behavior. A lot of speculation in this area and a lot of questions about definitions, like who gets to define what moral behavior is is this technologically or medically something that we should be doing, or is it uh, just a science fiction topic that we uh, maybe spend too much time uh, thinking about? So I think it's an interesting topic. I think there's going to be a lot of movement on it in the next several years.
2: Number nine, Kirk, you want to talk about immigration. Why is this a bioethics issue that we should be talking about?
0: Number nine.
5: Absolutely. Well, immigration um, is deeply rooted within the eugenics movement. And a lot of folks frown upon, as they should, Nazi Germany regarding the Holocaust. But one of the reasons um, by the Nazi party was by eugenic thinking that literally race and biology and genetics are intertwined and actually deeply rooted and connected. Obviously, we know that since the 1950s, that's not true. Race is a, and we'll talk about race specifically, but it's all interconnected. Um, and the reason why I'm mentioning that is because even now in the 21st century, immigration and disease um, is definitely prevalent. And that is rooted within the eugenic thinking that I mentioned previously. A most recent example, of course, is COVID-19 in the Asian and Pacific Islander community. Um, they're bringing this COVID over here and you know these mentalities, um, of infiltrating and, and really infestation of countries by Im- immigrants. And this is deeply rooted and nothing new, um, but deeply rooted within eugenic thinking. Um, also, a more recent report uh, came out from uh, ICE, uh, which is, of course is our immigration enforcement agency in America, that they've been performing hysterectomies on immigrants, uh, of course, without um, informed consent, without their knowledge. So we think that these ideas, ideologies are still prevalent or um, still you know, um, shouldn't be prevalent within our society, but they still are. And it's based off of these old archaic notions that um, immigrants are bringing um, illnesses and infestation within countries. And these um, ideas are rooted within a lot of eugenic thinking. So I think that's something that we really need to really dive deep more into in bioethics. And we see the consequences of this now um, based off of the mistreatment, the um, verbal mistreatment, the physical mistreatment, the cyberbullying of Asian and Pacific Islander community uh, in the current pandemic that we're still in with uh, COVID-19. So uh, something to think about.
2: Number eight. All right. Number eight is... CRISPR. So I know what you're thinking, haven't we talked enough about CRISPR? So this is not something that has been totally neglected in bioethics because it's a fancy genetic engineering tool. And so of course bioethicists were really excited about this a few years ago when it first sort of rolled out as a possibility because it's a way to edit genes that is like really fast. I I don't do this myself that I would admit to. No, just kidding. I don't have any skills in this. So, but apparently, (laughs) you
3: you, you don't edit genes. Is that what you're saying? I do not. But apparently, (laughs) you can
2: do this in your basement. I mean, people, it's apparently so easy and so cheap that people can do it. Like, non scientists can figure out how to do this in their own basements. So, which is, of course, alarming on all sorts of levels. But we haven't been talking as much about it lately, but there's been huge, like, clinical trials that are going on, dozens of clinical trials right now for all sorts of things. So the first, of course, um, thing that catches your eye is something like uh, doing this on humans. So there's been these incredible clinical studies on diseases like sickle cell anemia and cancer, where there's been shown a lot of promise that if we can just edit genes, we might be able to get rid of some of these diseases, which is what everyone's really excited about. However, we can also do this on embryos. And you might remember, it was about five years ago that Dr. He out of China did this um he edited the embryos of a couple girls um, to sort of prevent hiv transmission which was met with this huge backlash against the scientific community saying it was too soon to do that we didn't really know what the effects were going to be and he got in a lot of trouble for doing this but my suspicion is that we're going to continue to see people doing this even though the international community has said it's probably not a good idea yet So we're still worried about embryos. I think along Kirk's idea of eugenics, there's still a lot of people who are worried about what kinds of diseases we're going to be targeting, what kinds of disabilities we might be targeting in embryos. So that's a perpetual bioethics issue. But I also wanna mention that what often doesn't get as talked about are the other things that we're trying to use CRISPR for. So commercial products, like we can create bacterial cultures that are used in cheese and yogurt that are resistant to viral infection. So we're already kind of thinking about ways in which we could improve our food stocks. Um, we can produce genetically modified crops using CRISPR, control invasive pests, make mosquitoes infertile. Okay, I'm not against that per se. The less mosquitoes, the better, but this could have potentially devastating ecological impacts that we just don't really know about. The other thing we're doing is we're creating um, uses for the military, of course, because we always do this. Uh, How can we make our soldiers resistant to biological weapons? This is something, of course, the military is investigating. So all sorts of potential controversies about ecology and GMOs and patenting military research. We also have huge strides in chimeric animals for organ transplant. If you saw this in the news recently, we can sort of create uh, organs in other animals that can be used in humans if we just splice in enough human DNA. Uh, Some people think that's amazing because we have this huge organ shortage. On the other hand, who's going to get those organs and are they really safe? These are big questions for bioethics.
0: Number seven.
4: Yeah, so number seven, uh, mass incarceration. Our, Our listeners are probably aware that the United States has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. Um, locking up just short of two million souls, um, wh- which represent fully a quarter of the world's prisoners, um, and the carceral system has a vastly greater effect on the on the Black American community, um, and is closely tied to the historical arc of slavery in the United States. Um, incarceration has both acute health consequences as well as long term effects on physical and mental health, of not just to the in- incarcerated individuals but on their families, including children independence, uh, et cetera. Um, Particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, incarcerated individuals have been subjected to multiple outbreaks in prisons. For example, in San Quentin in California in 2020, uh, about a third of the inmates and staff tested positive. Um, Prisoners were not initially highly prioritized for vaccination. Um, And calls for reduction in the prison population um, did result in about 11% reduction in uh, folks who were incarcerated uh, through accelerated release, reduction in pretrial detention of those uh, awaiting trial for nonviolent crimes, et cetera. Um, But public health officials really felt that that wasn't sufficient to reduce the risk of COVID outbreaks in already overcrowded prison system. these facts raise many compelling bioethics issues in both public health ethics and ethics of individual clinical care. Um, for example, as Dr. Jennifer James mentioned in our most recent podcast released last week, check it out. Uh, manifestations of prominent bioethics concepts like autonomy and informed consent are constrained within the carceral system. These topics are are. Ripe for rich and deep exploration, yet little is said about mass incarceration in bioethics meetings and in major bioethics journals. Some of this neglect has to do with the way bioethics is trained. Much of bioethics scholarship and practice occurs within the academic medical set- setting. Prisoners are entitled to health care while incarcerated. However, uh, carceral healthcare systems have variable quality and access and are often isolated from the larger healthcare system, making prisoners as patients largely invisible in academic spaces. In addition, bioethicists ourselves are not known for socioeconomic, racial, or ethnic diversity, and therefore are less likely to have ties to communities most affected by incarceration. Um, and these are some of the reasons I think that this important topic has been understudied number six
2: all right so issue number six is the foster care system so we talk a lot in bioethics about artificial reproductive technologies because we love technology in bioethics right it's exciting we're developing all these new things that we can do with technology we are creating life in ways that we couldn't before that's terribly exciting what's not so exciting is talking about things like the foster care system so this is another i mean in in some ways you think okay well maybe it's not a bioethics issue then because it doesn't deal with technology but certainly it deals with human life and if we're talking about ways in which we are uh, ways in which couples might be thinking about having children adoption becomes a viable possibility or potentially an alternative to artificial reproductive technologies so why don't we ever talk about foster care Um, So we have this huge foster care system in America that has really terrible outcomes for children. And we tend to ignore that in bioethics as if it weren't a bioethics issue. But, you know, this is the ethics of life, right? So we should be talking about this as well. So if you didn't know, in America, one in 17 kids enters foster care before they turn 18 that is a huge number and it's actually one that's growing so at any time there's like half a million children in foster care and over the last decade that number has increased pretty dramatically in part because of the opioid epidemic and so when we have parents who are unable to care for their children this creates more sort of need for the foster care system Um, but these numbers are way worse for non-white children so one in nine black children and one in seven children of Native American families are in the foster care system. So huge racial issue there, too. And we know that once they're in the foster care system, the outcomes are really terrible. So more than 40% of those who enter into the foster care system are moved between different foster homes, which research shows is really bad for children. So moving children between different families, between different institutions is really traumatic on their sort of growth as children. and we know that once they're placed in group homes they have a lot of worse outcomes. So kids who are in foster care, 50% of them won't graduate high school in time. 50%, that's just astounding to me. 48% of girls in the foster care system become pregnant by the age of 19. So what's going on there? Uh they are four times more likely to attempt suicide. And The list goes on and on so just to say kids who enter into the foster care system have huge disadvantages it's an underfunded system it's something that we kind of ignore in bioethics but to me seems like a huge bioethics issue it's systemic it's public health how do we think about how to care for these children and you know if we're ever advising clinicians to call cps what are the repercussions of that what does it look like when we take children away from their families and what does reunification really mean in those instances? So something I think we could be talking more about. All right. And then number five, Nicole, what's our number five issue?
1: Number five. Number five is income inequality. You know, there's there's probably no bigger social determinant of health than poverty. Um, when I'm teaching about social determinants of health to my students, one of the things we do to sort of drive home the point is first we go over five traditional tips for health. You know, Have a healthy diet, exercise, get regular checkups. And the final tip is don't smoke. If you do smoke, stop. And if you can't stop now, try not to smoke for very much longer. And then what we do is we show the true, the five true sort of social and structural determinants that underlie those five traditional tips for health. And the last one, I always sort of hit it like a punchline because it's kind of like a joke, but I think mostly our audiences really understand how true it is, which is don't be poor. Right. If you're poor, stop. If you can't stop now, try not to be poor for very much longer, because the truth is that in this country, the single greatest piece of advice we could give somebody is not to be poor. You know, the fact that, you know, income inequality drives so many of our health outcomes and frankly drives this country's very low ranking in terms of, you know, our health care that we deliver um, compared to other similar countries. It's frankly, it's the most egregious ethical issue of our time. And the majority of the things we talk about in bioethics impact only the people who aren't poor. You know, people who have health insurance, people who have a little bit of stability, a safety net, who might be able to afford, you know, to go to a good hospital, who might have health literacy from a a decent education. Back when I was working for the Bioethics Commission under Obama, I wrote a sentence that eventually did make it into one of our reports, and I really regret that sentence now. And I think it was a report about, you know, some new advancing technology. That's always what we're talking about in bioethics. It might've been neurotechnology or genetics or something. And we were in a section talking about distributive justice. And the sentence said something like, while we cannot eliminate the more intractable forms of injustice, we can at least ensure that the benefits of this new technology or new innovation are distributed equally moving forward. And I really think bioethics can do better than that, right? That's why I regret the sentence. Why can't we work in coalition with people in other fields, you know, in social services agencies, economists, politicians, policymakers, and other kinds of people who can actually make an impact on something like income inequality? We shouldn't just accept it as the status quo because it's just simply not ethical. You know, I think the thing about this is it requires bioethics to be more political than we want to be. I'm always advocating for us to stop being afraid to step into the political arena, but politics kind of feels like the third rail to us. Um, But, you know, in order to really talk about what's what's ethical and what's unethical in this country, you know, it shouldn't it shouldn't threaten my position as a professor or as an authority figure with my students to say that when politicians fight against Medicaid expansion or fight against efforts to expand healthcare access or fight against efforts to improve access to food stamps or to education, that is unethical. We live in a country where people die because of decisions that politicians make. And I think bioethics should get in the mix and you know call out unethical political behavior, especially when it leads to further entrenched issues like income inequality, which just has such a huge impact on health. Number four.
2: All right, so number four is disability and ableism. Disability and ableism. Okay, a huge category, right? And pervasive in healthcare. So we just had this great report come out from Iazoni and colleagues at Harvard that showed what most of us who do work in disability already knew, but in a very stark way. So she and her colleagues surveyed a little over 700 US physicians nationwide and found that 82% of them feel like people with significant disabilities have a worse quality of life than non-disabled people. Of course, all the evidence shows that that's not true. People with disabilities tend to rate their lives, their quality of life, as high as everybody else. Nobody believes it. 82% of physicians just don't believe them. Forty percent, Almost 41% of those physicians were very confident in their ability to provide the same quality of care to patients with disabilities as those without disabilities. That's alarming. Only 40% of them feel like they can care for their patients with disabilities. 56% 56% of them felt like they were welcoming to patients with disabilities in their practices. 56%. Imagine if we substituted some other marginalized community for for people with disabilities. Um, and 18% felt that the healthcare system doesn't treat these patients fairly. My guess is the number's actually quite a bit higher. So we have a group of physicians who just admittedly do not treat patients with disabilities in the same sorts of ways, feel like they could be doing better. And that's just what they admit. We know that in surveys, people tend to like rate themselves a little bit better than they actually are, because you know we like to think the best of ourselves. So this is like best possible scenario. So we know there's lots of bias from physicians against people with disabilities. And this shows up in all sorts of places in healthcare. It showed up in triage policies when the pandemic began. So for those who were following it, there were state triage policies that said things like, people with intellectual disabilities shouldn't receive intensive care during a pandemic. And of course, disability rights groups jumped all over that and said, what do you mean people with intellectual disabilities shouldn't receive intensive care? There's no evidence that having an intellectual disability makes you less likely to survive a pandemic. So that was jumped on right away. And there were several states, I think at least seven or eight that had OCR recommendations. So people went to the Office of Civil Rights and said, hey, our state guidelines are discriminatory against people with disabilities, and they had to be altered. The other area I'm working in on this issue is organ transplantation. So most, the majority of transplant centers still take intellectual and developmental disabilities as a contraindication for organ transplant meaning you could be denied an organ because you have an intellectual disability, even though studies show that people with intellectual disabilities do just as well as people without intellectual disabilities post-transplant. So there's really no evidence that this is a contraindication for transplant. And yet, because transplant centers are allowed to write their own exclusion criteria, this happens all the time, more than half of transplant centers think that intellectual disability is a relative or absolute contraindication for transplant. And this is something I know that a lot of disability advocates are working on right now. So how do we get fair and equal access to scarce resources when people have all these biases against people with disabilities in our healthcare system?
0: Number three.
5: Number three is climate change. Um, so this is, a, other than, of course, the impending apocalypse on and threat to humanity, um, which usually we think about, you know, uh, uh, regarding <laughs> climate change, there are a lot of other bioethical implications. Uh, so first, of course, infrastructure and equity. Um, we know that President Biden just passed, well, trying to pass this uh, infrastructure bill. I know that isn't fully into law. notes in the Senate right now. Uh, but infrastructure is hugely important regarding bioethics because infrastructure literally could be life or death for individuals geographically, right? Depending on where you live. We've seen this with um, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, right? Regarding the poor infrastructure because of the strengthening of these hurricanes and storms. Even most recently in New Jersey, we had I think three tornadoes that ripped through neighborhoods and um, basically an amount of water um, in the past particular Hurricane Ida that we had, we had more water in I think uh, six hours than we had in literally all year, right? And that really dramatically impacted areas that were considered flood zones and people lost not just their um, material possessions, but unfortunately some students um, here at my uh, school, but also other uh, individuals lost lost their lives, right? So how can we actually uh, be progressive in um, our carbon footprint, right? How can we press our elected officials to create policies and go back to my colleague, Nicole, really being in political um, rooms, saying, you know, we really need to have sound objective decisions, right? Not based off of politics per se, but based off of what is best for uh, the sanctity and the quality of life for the great majority. So infrastructure and policy is very important. And of course that is connected to equity because usually the infrastructure Usually, poor infrastructure are in lower socioeconomic um, communities compared to communities that have um, higher net worth. So that's extremely important. Uh, the second is, of course, the ecosystem. Right, a uh, species extinction. As you see, the climate changes. Of course, it dramatically changes the ecosystem and really dismantles the ebb and flow. Right, or to use you know the pun here. The Lion King, upon uh, you know, the circle of life, right? Not to be funny or anything, but it's really true. You know, everything is so interconnected and balanced within the ecosystem. And when you have different temperatures and climates change, that definitely alters the livelihood of not just humanity, but also all of living creatures on, on this planet. And we really need to consider that. Um, also agriculture, the food we eat. Currently, I was watching CNBC and everybody's worrying about inflation with food prices. Well, um, the quality of food wheat regarding agriculture is definitely, it's already dramatically changed the past 20 to 30 years, and it's going to get worse regarding the quality of soil. I'm talking to, listening to farmers and speaking with farmers and those who work in agriculture. Climate change is real, um, and it really impacts not uh, our diets and also just overall um, health in general. Uh, Also pathology and epidemiology. So of course, you know that uh, diseases and viruses naturally occur within um, our um, ecosystems, within the environment, but that also could dramatically change due to the changes of temperature um, in different geographies. Uh, And lastly is socioeconomics as well, um, which is very important. So usually individuals who are wealthier they have that uh, financial resource and other particular resources to adapt to climate change. But if you are in a poor socioeconomic um, level or particular bracket, you don't have that uh, social mobility or flexibility, right, to, you know, oh, if I lose my house, oh, I could just get another one, right? So there are a lot of particular implications that we really need to consider that are connected with quality of life and connected with Uh, overall health and well-being, we definitely need to consider within bioethics. And there's more, but these are my top three and the number three of our top 10. So these are things that we should consider.
0: (laughs) Number
3: two. All right. Number two has to do with the Second Amendment, gun violence. So in our country, we have more guns than we have people. And we have more people who die or get injured from gun violence than any other country. So, gun violence isn't just a criminal issue, it's actually a public health issue, which makes it a bioethics issue as well. So, gun violence or or, um, injuries caused by guns is the leading cause of premature death in the United States. The leading cause. Almost 40,000 people a year are killed, and 85,000 people are injured every year by by guns. Um, So according to the CDC, more people were killed by guns, by firearms, than in traffic accidents in a recent year, which is just astounding to me. Um, So federal gun research has been really um, an interesting area to look at over the last several decades because in 1996, there was an amendment of a law a uh, funding mechanism for the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that does most of the public health research in the country that limited using public funds to, uh, to study gun violence, to advocate or promote gun safety, to the point that in, in one state, I believe it was Florida, but don't quote me on that, where it was actually prohibited by state law for a healthcare provider to ask whether there were guns or not in the home. Um, of children. So in 2018 that law was amended or clarified a little bit and a specific allocation of $25 million was uh, given to the CDC specifically look at gun safety and gun violence, but I think that if we have a leading cause of preventable disease that is so entrenched within not just the way that we view uh, ourselves and view ourselves as a country, but also in, in the, the healthcare system and the ways in which people have access to care and it's exacerbated in in certain communities and certain areas of our country. Um, I think it's a a really interesting bioethics issue that just does not get enough attention. So, all right, we're down to number one. Nicole, tell us the, the easy issue that we're gonna end with here.
1: Um number one. Right, The right, the really easy issue. Um, well, both both podcasts came together and agreed that racism is the biggest issue in bioethics that's under, under discussed, but also that we probably don't have enough time to cover it um, really in, in three to four minutes, but I'm going to do my best. And Tyler, I just want to say thank you for talking about guns and gun violence. And, you know, I live in Philadelphia and we just hit a really grim milestone of 500 people who've been murdered just this year, which is the first time we've hit that in a number of years. So, um, you know, it's, it's really an important public health issue, bioethics issue, and it's so closely tied into racism, right? And racism is really, it's threaded through the history of bioethics, right? Racism was at the root of what was going on in the U.S. Public Health Service study of um, Tuskegee in Tuskegee, Alabama of syphilis, right? It's tied into issues with consent and biobanking that were raised by the Henrietta Lacks case you know even the nuremberg trials where we derive of so much of our ethical framework was the result of nazi experimentation which also was fundamentally rooted in racism so it's so threaded through bioethics but we don't talk about it nearly enough and that's certainly starting to change in the past year and a half or so but i think we have a lot more work to do i think the thing is here it's not enough for bioethics just to notice race just to point it out and just to say hey race is relevant here it also really matters how we talk about it i think you know bioethics needs to engage with all this existing scholarship that's out there about race and racism. And we need to start moving beyond these simplistic narratives and you know ideas like implicit bias. And instead, you know, and beyond just sort of describing health disparities and pointing them out, but really trying to understand the root causes, the structures um, that cause those issues. We need to understand, you know, the legacy that slavery and Jim Crow and the one-drop rule and redlining and all these other sort of historical and present-day forces leave specifically on anti-black racism and what that means for black Americans who are seeking health care. So many of us, bioethicists work in healthcare settings. We work in hospitals, academic medical centers, medical schools. And I think the hard part about this is that part of really grappling with racism in our field is to acknowledge our complicity in systems of racialized capitalism medicine has a really awful, deplorable history of anti-Black racism, from the Flexner report, literally trying to keep Black doctors out of, quote-unquote, white hospitals, to the lionization of somebody like J. Marion Sims, who's sort of the father of modern gynecology, even though he discovered what he did by essentially abusing and torturing Black women, you know, to generally medicine's participation in a for-profit healthcare industry that harms Black people and poor people most of all. And I think, you know, as I talked about in my previous answer, unfortunately, this is gonna come down to politics, right? Bioethics has avoided politics, but it's no longer acceptable to do so. We have to be advocates. We have to push back against what we know is unethical. Um, that requires engaging with political questions, like you know, which politician is gonna expand Medicaid and which one's gonna cut its funding? Which politician wants to censor important conversations about our nation's history and structural racism by banning, quote unquote, critical race theory? And which actually want us to have that discussion in our schools, Uh, which politicians want to gerrymander and limit the voting power and civic engagement of black Americans and which ones want to empower them. You know, it's not enough to just recruit more diverse bioethics scholars, although we certainly need to do that. Um, And it's not enough just to publish more papers in our mainstream bioethic journals about race and racism, although we should do that, too we also have to engage with this broader societal and cultural and political environment as it relates to medicine and science. And I think if we're unwilling to do that, then we are failing to grapple with the most egregious ethical issue of our
5: time. Preach, preach, preach.
2: <laughs> we'll solve most of
1: these within the gear, right? Right, right. We'll have a new top 10 list next year, perfect. Right, yeah. exactly, yeah. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jung and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.